0: Well, good morning. How many people have ever heard a message, your first sermon from uh, the book of Haggai, huh? Another <laughs> way to start the new year, huh? Well, here we are. <clears throat> it's the start of another year. Um, it's, uh, it's only January 2nd, so hopefully most of you are still filled with um, hope for a great year, right? Despite COVID seeming to be the, the gift that keeps on giving. But it is a new year, a fresh start, filled with, with big plans and, and lots of willpower. I think the problem we typically run into is that, is that our goals are, uh, are built on usually best case scenarios, which of course life has a way of, of disrupting pretty quickly. And of course, secondly, um, I don't know, you, has anyone ever noticed how willpower seems to come with a really small gas tank? I mean, we're we're revving the engines today, right? But we often run out of gas somewhere between the middle and end of January, and I think this reality leaves um, many people to stop making any plans for the new year because they know they're just setting themselves up for disappointment. Well, today my goal is not to talk you into or out of making any kind of New Year's goals or resolutions. Instead, today, I simply want us to take inventory of our lives through a biblical lens. You know, one of my favorite books is, uh, is Pilgrim's Progress. I've always loved Pilgrim's Progress. And, and I suspect it's, it's historically, it's one of the most popular books ever written because I think we can all relate to our lives as, as, as being on this journey And and hopefully we're, we're on this journey toward a planned destination. So today my goal for us is to simply assess where we are on that journey and make sure we're making progress in the right direction. So as I said, you saw my, my text is from this little book of Haggai and, um, uh, I, I ran across this, this, this text a few weeks ago. If you guys are, so, those of you who track with the CBR know we were going through the Minor Prophets. And yes, this is where I like, wow, this will preach. And uh, I thought if I, you know, I usually preach usually the last, the last service of the year or the first year. And I thought if I, if I get asked to preach the first service of the year, I think I know my text. And so here we are. <laughs> um, but you know, it, this, this, this text challenged me deeply as I read it and pondered it. And I think it is absolutely applicable for us to consider as we launch into this new year. So as we do this, we're gonna, I want to examine this text by looking at four key elements of it. We're going to look at the message of God to his people. We're going to examine the consequences of the people's sin. We're going to look at God's exhortation to them. And finally, we'll look at the people's response. Let me pray for us real quick before we begin. Father, thank you that you um, have been so pleased to give each of us here um, another day to live, another year to live. God, the the gift of life, the gift of breath is one we should not take for granted. And we know that you have given us this breath for purpose, uh, and it's not our purpose. So God, uh, would you speak to us today through your word? where where the the words that were written so many centuries ago speak to our hearts today through your spirit. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your word today. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Well, I think before we get into the heart of the text, it's important for us to have some uh, historical context regarding temples. And so... uh, Bear with me, those of you who don't like history, Like, deal. I'm going to go quick here, okay? But I want to go back a little bit. I want to go back to 1400 BC. And this was shortly after the exodus from Egypt when God, he commanded Moses to build a tabernacle. And if you don't know, a tabernacle at that point was, it was a fancy name for, it was a tent um, that could be set up and taken down as they were moving through the desert on their way to the promised land. And this tabernacle, it represented the dwelling place of God with the people. This was where they worshipped. It's where they made sacrifices. It's where they learned to follow God's law. Now, skip ahead 500 years to about 964 B.C., when at God's direction, Solomon builds the first permanent tabernacle or temple for worship and sacrifice. Same thing, just as a permanent facility now. It took him seven years to build it, and, and if those of you who are history buffs know this was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This temple stood proudly for, for 400 years until 586 B.C., when the Babylonians conquered the nation of Judah, they destroyed Solomon's temple, and they carried away the people into captivity in Babylon. Now skip ahead 50 more years to 539 BC when the Persians under Cyrus the Great captured Babylon. And then exactly, and then one year later, Cyrus then makes this proclamation that allowed the Jewish people to return to Jerusalem and begin rebuilding the temple. We read in the book of Ezra in chapter 3, it says they got off to a really good start on building this temple, but then... Right after they, they got the foundation laid, they started experiencing some opposition from the non-Jews who lived in the area. And this ultimately led to the, to the project kind of stalling out with nothing but the foundation to show for it. Now, move forward one more time, another 18 years, the 520 BC, and this is where we find ourselves today in Haggai 1. Now, that's 900 years of history in two minutes. Don't you wish I was your history teacher? <laughs> so, the first thing we see in this chapter is a message from the Lord. Haggai was a prophet at this time, and he, he came and he delivered this message to the current governor of Judah, whose name was Zerubbabel, that's a fun name to say, And and the high priest named Joshua. And we see his message starts in verse 2, where he says... Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, of course, he's referring to the fact that they had stopped working on the temple 18 years ago, and there just doesn't seem to be much to show for it, and there's no urgency to get back to work. Now, we don't know whether this was was due to a fear of, of continued opposition or if it was just laziness. But somehow it appears that they determined that that God wasn't yet leading them to rebuild the temple yet. And then it's here that God delivers a pretty stinging rebuke. Starting in verse 3, we read, The word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your panel houses while this house lies in ruins? Ouch. Ouch. And of course, he's, he, this is response to verse 2, where the people apparently had tried to spiritualize their selfishness by contending that God had not led them yet to get back to work on the temple project yet. And so it appear that God's saying here, okay, let me see if I got this straight. You haven't felt led by me to work on my house that's nothing but a slab at this point. But you have felt led to add luxuries to your own house. Do I got that straight? Is this how it is? Hmm. That had to be a pretty awkward moment for the people, right? And to be clear, this is not ultimately about physical structures. God is not upset because he has to sleep on an open slab. Solomon acknowledged this at the dedication of the first temple when he said um, in First Kings, he says, but, but will God indeed live on earth, even heaven, the highest heaven? Even earth, the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this temple I have built. And we see the same thing. Paul reiterates the same message in Acts 17 when he's talking to the Corinthians. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So, God is not lamenting that He's homeless here. He's grieving that they're worshiping themselves instead of the one true God. He's saying the state of their homes and the state of the temple reflect the state of their hearts. And I think what was true then is still true today. God's dwelling place now is in the hearts of men. And, and I think it's safe to say that there are temples all around us that are lying in ruins. And yet our churches are filled with people who live in beautiful homes with garages and storage units stuffed with toys who would say, well, I just don't have room in my budget right now to give to God. For probably too many of us, our calendars are filled with work and, and recreational activities, but it's not uncommon to hear people say, well, you know, this isn't just the right season for me to engage in minister your missions. So I think the message of Haggai is as applicable today as it was then. And that takes us to the next part where he lays out the consequences of their sinful actions. We read in verse 5 the first two times where God tells them to think carefully about your ways. And this first charge, to think carefully about your ways, is a call to reflect or to look back. He's saying, I want you to take inventory of the reality of your lives Listen to verse 5, now the Lord of the army says this, think carefully about your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink but never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. He's saying, you guys are, you're, 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 you're like a hamster on a wheel. You're running hard, but you're going nowhere. Your self-absorption is like saving money in a bag that literally has a hole in the bottom. So in verse five and six is where he, he paints this picture of the futility of their lives. And then in verse nine through 11, he reveals the cause of their Futility. Look again. You expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Because my house still lies in ruins. while each of you is busy with his own house. So on your account, the skies have withheld the dew and the land its crops. I have summoned the drought on the fields and the hills on the grain, new wine, fresh oil and whatever the ground yields on people and animals and on all that your hands produce. You see he's essentially he's telling these Jewish people who grew up studying the law, he's saying you forgot the first commandment. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me. And that's why he says, think carefully about your ways. You may say that you're worshiping me, but the evidence says you're worshiping yourselves. And I care too much about my glory and your eternal welfare to allow you to live as a glory thief. So in verse 10 through 11, we read that God admits that he caused the drought that ruined their crops, making all of their efforts futile. And I think their problem was really no different than our problem today. Because I think what they did was they functionally reversed roles with God. I'm pretty confident they probably prayed to God to to bless their crops, to keep them safe, to make them healthy. But you see, they were in effect asking God to serve them and help him build their little kingdoms. And God would have no part of it then, and he will still have no part of it now. God is telling us the same thing today. Church, think carefully about your ways. What percentage of our prayers today is about our comfort, our safety, our health, our prosperity, compared to prayers that he would give us courage, compassion, and boldness to be effective servants in building his kingdom? Think carefully about your ways. Look at your bank statement. Look at your calendar. Look at your stuff. Look at your prayers. Whose temple does it indicate that you're building? And trust me, I'm asking myself the same questions. But you know, talk squarely in the middle of this stinging indictment we see the second charge to think carefully about your ways. Look at verse seven. The Lord of the armies says this Think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down lumber, and build the house, and I will be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. See, verse 8 is this forward-thinking call. God, God first asked them to look back and to see the sinfulness of their pathways. Now he's asking them to look ahead and consider what they're going to do going forward. And don't overlook what their motivation should be to get back to work. Do you see it? So that God will be pleased and glorified. I think verse 8 is where we see the dividing line separating all of humanity. Every human being alive either lives to please and glorify God or they live to please and glorify themselves. And it's precisely this that God is saying, think carefully about your ways. Fortunately, this story of Haggai has a happy ending. And the good news is it appears that they did think carefully about their ways because we read in verse 12, it says, then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God and the words of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him. So the people feared the Lord then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. The Lord roused the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. They began work on the house of the Lord of armies, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. So based on verse 15 and verse 1, we can see that based on the Jewish calendar, they got this message on August 1st of 520 BC to think carefully about their ways. And 24 days later on August 24th, they got back to work on the Lord's house which history records was completed five years later in 515 B.C. I think it's important to highlight two things in 12 and 13. First, we read in verse 12, it says that the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God. And then a few verses later, it's words later, it says, and they feared the Lord, meaning they revered him. They rightly revered him. You see, reverence, reverence is the fuel of obedience. If we don't fear or revere God the way we should, then we won't obey him the way we should. And likewise, if we don't obey God, then it's only because we don't revere him as we should. We must ponder this truth as we think carefully about our ways. But lastly, I think we need to take note of God's response in verse 13. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. What a remarkable change, right? I mean, when they were neglecting God to serve themselves, God God says he was against them. He says he ruined their efforts. Or some of your translation says, I blew it away. It says, now that they listened and are obeying God of reverence, he says, I am with you. Now I'm with you. God with us is a good place to be in life, isn't it? Now, some of you are sharp. you probably, you may be thinking, wait, I know of another place in scripture where God says, I am with you, right? Right? And of course, that's the last words of Jesus found in Matthew 28. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So you see, the charge is no different to the people of 520 B.C. than it was 33 A.D. or to us today. We're all called to build his temple, and the only thing that has changed is the type of temple. You see, the dwelling place of God is no longer built with physical stones, but as we read in 1 Peter, who describes them as living stones, means it's built with you and me. We collectively are the temple of God. In Ephesians 2, we read this, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So you see, the charge of of Matthew 28 is no different than the charge of Haggai 1. Making disciples is temple building. And when we dedicate our lives to making disciples, Jesus says, I'm with you to the end. But you know, as I thought about this, I realized the problem that we have, I think too often, is we like, we like to quote verse 20 that says, I am with you even to the end of the age, right? We all like to hear that. We just don't always want to connect it to the condition that he's with us when we obey his command to go and make disciples of all nations, So what do we do with all this? What does it look like for us and here January 2nd, 2022 to think carefully about our ways? For simplicity purposes, I think we can boil it down to three words to consider. Presence, purpose, and power. A God-honoring life is the intersection of these three things, it is a dependence on the power of God to draw us into the presence of God and to work towards the purpose of God. This is the shift that we saw in the people in our text today, and I think it applies to us as well. Recently, I've been reading a book by, by Jerry Bridges entitled Respectable Sins. And the first sin that he examines in this book which he contends is the root of all of our sin is ungodliness. This is how Bridges defines ungodliness. As living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God or of God's will or of God's glory or on one's dependence on God. Sounds a little like our folks in Haggai, right? He goes on to say this. He says someone can lead a respectable life and still be ungodly in the sense that God is essentially irrelevant in his or her life. They may be friendly, courteous, and helpful to people, but God is not at all in their thoughts. Hear this. They are not wicked people, but they are ungodly. So therefore, I think conversely, we could then define godliness as living every day with a continual thought of God and God's will and God's glory and, our, and on our total dependence on God. And then there's where we see this, this three elements of presence, purpose, and power. So I want to close with some application points, but, but I think first we need to examine the phrase I am with you a little closer before we get there. You see, if we're not careful, it's pretty easy for us to imagine this phrase as God saying, hey, when you, when you do my work, I'm gonna be on the sidelines cheering for you. I'm with you. You've got, I've got your back. You have my support. But you, you see, the problem with that mindset is it puts us back into the center God is not a passive spectator cheering us on when we do well. Or even our chief consultant who we have at our beck and call. That's not what he means. Instead, I think the Bible is pretty clear that when God says, I am with you, it's an indication that he is the source of our obedience. Not that he's our fan or on our side. Though it is true that he is for us. We see this in our text today in verse 14. Immediately after saying, I am with you, in verse 13, we read in verse 14, The Lord roused the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. They began work on the house of the Lord of armies, their God. You see it? Why did they get back to work? Was it because they they picked themselves up by the bootstraps and and determined, yes, we're going to do that? Or was it because the Lord roused their spirit? That's how he was with them. That's how they knew he was with them. I mean, we're going back. This was the heart of Lawson's message last week from John 15, right? Remain in me and I in you. Just as the branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. Without the power of God working in us, we will not pursue his presence. And we cannot achieve his purpose. And therefore, to the degree that we find ourselves relishing time in his presence and passionately pursuing his purpose, we can take the comfort that God is indeed with us. Because if he were not, we are incapable of our own to remain in him. And thus, we're also incapable of producing any fruit. So I think it's really clear and important to understand that today's message is not, this is not a call to greater willpower or self-discipline or let's get up and try harder. It's a call to humility and dependence. In Colossians 1, Paul says it this way. Verse 28, we proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. That's it, right? Do you see it? We labor, we strive, we proclaim, we warn, we teach, but we do it all with the humble acknowledgement that it is only done with his strength powerfully working within us. If he's not with us, we do nothing. When he is with us, though, there's no limit to what we can do through his strength. This is the Christian life, right? It's his power drawing us into his presence and then propelling us to accomplish his purpose. So with that clarity, I want to wrap up by, by exploring for a moment what temple building or disciple-making looks like for you and me today. Lawson talked pretty extensively last week about what being in the presence of God looked like. So I want to focus more of our time today dealing with a third P, or purpose. You see, if God, if God has saved you from the domain of darkness and he has adopted you into his family, that I think it's expected that you will be a part of the family business. And of course, the family business is making disciples, the living stones of the temple of God. I think just to clear up any confusion, the commandment of Matthew 28, we note, is not to go into the world and make converts. It doesn't say that, does it? It says, go into the world and make disciples. And that means that everyone in our life is part of our mission. Whether it's the most staunch atheist or the most devout follower. Like Pilgrim's Progress, we're all on this journey and none of us have arrived at the destination yet. And therefore our job with everyone is to be, is be like the guy at the intersections who you know spins the sign pointing people to a particular business except our signs just say, Jesus, this way. Jesus, this way. And I thought about it, I thought, you know, disciple-making to me <clears throat> is a lot like a community 5K race. You guys have done one of those. My experience is, for most people, these are not super competitive events. <laughs> the goal for just about everyone there is, is really, I, best I can tell, three things. Have fun, finish the race, and it encourages many people along the way to finish as well. So this would mean that this could look like as, as you run your race, if you see someone going the opposite direction, inform them that they're going the wrong way and implore them to turn around. If you're running your race and you come up on someone sitting on the curb thinking about giving up, you stop and you pause to encourage them to get back up and Finish. If you see someone who looks dehydrated or out of energy, will you give them some water or, or you pull an energy bar out? If you see someone veer off course, you, you go after them and you help get them back in the right direction. If someone gets injured, you, you, put their, you put their arm over your shoulder and you walk with them until they're able to run on their own again. And to the guys who are ahead of you are running strong, you applaud them, and you encourage them to keep it up. You see, the the joy of the event is not primarily the fastest time. It's finishing, and seeing as many people as possible finish as well. So if this is indeed a picture of discipleship, then, then being a disciple maker means that it means that our neighbors are no longer people we avoid while we hole up in our little castles. They're people who God has strategically placed close to us so that we can come alongside them wherever they are on their spiritual journey. It means that our co workers are no longer a nuisance for us to tolerate while we earn a paycheck. They're souls that God has strategically placed in our sphere of influence to love, to pray for, and appoint to, to Christ. Our children do not exist to glorify us with all of their great athletic or artistic accomplishments. God has placed them in our house for us to train them in the way that they should go, that they may glorify Him. Our extended family, our fellow church members, our dentist, the person checking out our groceries, the, the homeless guy at the, at the stoplight, the person who flips us off on the highway. We're all on this race we call life. And our God given mission is to meet all of them wherever they are and say, Jesus, this way. So, church, as we As we launch into 2022, I encourage each of us to humbly and prayerfully think carefully about your ways. Ask yourself, how much of your life is spent in the presence of God, devoted to the purpose of God, and dependent on the power of God? When you think about your goals and dreams for this year, whose temple are you building? I would implore each of us over the next few days to think carefully as you assess what degree of our everyday life is consciously driven by a desire to enjoy His presence, to obey His will, to live for His glory, to build His kingdom, and to depend wholly on Him. My prayer for us this year is that God would rouse our spirits. Oh, would He rouse our spirits like He did for the people of Judah. And like them, we will get to work on the house of the Lord. And to this end, may God truly be with us in the year ahead. Pray with me. Father, may we not look at the text that we read today and and look like the Pharisee and and, and thank God we're not like those people. God, would this this text um, move us to humility? But would it also move us to hope? That God, and our plea, is that you, like those people, would rouse our spirits. God, give us a passion for your house, for your people, for your kingdom. God, as we think about this, this year, you have given us this year of life. God, would we think carefully about our ways? Would we look at the things that we we hope to accomplish? Would we look at the things that we want to do, the places we want to go? And God, would we assess them all through the lens of whose kingdom are we building? God, guide our hearts, rouse our spirits. and and, And like the people of Haggai's time, would we get back to work doing what you have called us to do? And it's in your power, your strength that we can do any of this. We pray this in your name.